We are here because God is good. And you're in the house of God because we're here to hear the word of God and ask that God would speak to us. We have an incredible privilege of gathering together in Jesus' name. And his presence is here. And I want to say that he is sovereign today. Sovereign means that he's in control of all things. There's nothing too big or too small to escape his attention. I want to say that the God that we worship is omnipotent, which means he has all power to overcome anything. There is nothing beyond his ability to do. We have a God that's omniscient, which means that he knows all things, past, present, and future. We have a God who's immutable, which means he never changes. Think about that. That this God never changes because he is already perfect and you cannot improve on perfection. I thank God that he's immutable. How many of you here tend to be moody and you change from day to day? I thank God that when he woke up this morning, he was full of love and compassion and mercy and loving kindness, and that he will be that way tomorrow and the day after and to eternity because he is immutable. So we pause today, Father, and welcome your presence in this place. We ask, Lord Jesus, that you would help awaken our spirits to you. We pray that our ears would be open. If there's anything that is hindering our listening, we pray that you would reveal it to us, open our spiritual eyes that we may see. We pray that you would break through clouds of confusion. We pray that you would step into darkness and reveal light. We pray in Jesus' name that we would come under conviction when we need to and be encouraged when you so choose to do so. And so we ask you all of this in the powerful name of Jesus the Christ, who, who died, who rose again, and who sits at the right hand of the Father. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated at this time. We're in a series entitled The Ten Commandments. And I know it's Youth Sunday, but we are on commandment number seven, Thou shalt not commit adultery. It's not what I would have chosen for Youth Sunday, but I believe that God is going to speak to many hearts today through his word. A billboard in California a few years ago caught the attention of many people. It was on the side of the expressway. And in big, bold letters, it stated, life is short, have an affair. It was designed by a dating website specifically targeting married people. And when the creator of the billboard was talked to about the message, he conveyed a message that resonates with a lot of people who no longer either believe in marriage or who've had a bad experience with marriage. Uh, the author of the billboard said, well, monogamy has never worked. 
in society and doesn't deserve to be upheld as a social value. So let's just call it as it is. People stray. That's all there is to it. What the designer of this dating website targeting married people was saying is that you can just pretty much expect that most married people are unhappy with their marriage. And so therefore, why don't we seduce and induce them to have an affair? It just so happens that this June, on June 14th, my wife and I celebrated a milestone 35 years ago. She said, I do. I said, yes, I do. It was 35 years ago that I vowed to honor, love, cherish her. And I want to just say that our 35 years of marriage are a testimony to her incredible patience and double grace of God on her life for our marriage. But it was, it's significant as we jump into this message on you shall not commit adultery, I believe that no one sets out to be unfaithful to their spouse when they say, I do. I've done hundreds of weddings and I've never talked to anybody that said, you know, in five years, I'm going to be unfaithful to my wife. Or yeah, I'm not really convinced that I'm going to be true to my spouse. Most people start out with the conviction and convince, especially if they're believers, that they will be true, that they will be faithful, that there will be no cheating or infidelity. Unfortunately, however, 53% of those that say I do, a few years down the road, say I don't anymore and end up in divorce court. So today I want to talk to you about why it's important to uphold the integrity of marriage, why it's worth fighting for, and I'm going to end by helping you understand what you can do to a fair-proof your marriage. I'm going to answer four questions in this message today. Number one, what is adultery? Number two, why is marriage faithfulness such a big deal to God and why it should be a big deal to you? Number three, what is adultery of the heart? And number four, how do you safeguard your marriage against adultery? It's a short command. It's commandment number seven, right in the middle, right after thou shalt not murder. It's no more than a few words, but it carries a powerful punch and impact. Commandment number seven says, you shall not commit adultery. Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. So let's start out by asking ourselves this question. Well, what is adultery anyways? I know not, that not everybody here was raised in a Christian background, and so there's a lot of words that become confusing. Immorality, fornication, adultery. What is adultery? Well, adultery is simply, adultery is when a married person has an illicit 
sexual relationship when someone with a person that is not their spouse. It's breaking of the marriage covenant. We call it cheating. Adultery always involves violating the existing covenant that was made at marriage, saying, I will be faithful to you until death do us part. It always involves breaking that covenant to meet a sexual need of one kind or another. The word in the Latin, adultare, uh, carries the meaning to pollute, to take something pure and contaminate it. Uh, when we say that someone has committed adultery, we're simply stating that that person has corrupted his or her marriage by introducing a third party. The marriage has been altered, changed, or polluted. You say, well, pastor, how often does adultery happen in our country, in marriages? Well, let's take a look at that. Some of the sad facts. 90% of Americans believe that adultery is immoral. So the great majority of Americans would agree that to be married and to have an affair outside of your marriage is just plain wrong. However, about 20% in the United States, a study shows that 20% of married couples are likely to encounter infidelity. That's one in every five married couples will encounter infidelity in their marriage. And by the way, out of couples that are dating, they tell us that about 70% of unmarried couples may have to deal with cheating in the course of their relationship. That's 70%, seven zero percent of dating couples will have to encounter cheating of some kind as they engage in a dating relationship. That's pretty ominous. The percentages of marriages that admit to infidelity, emotional or physical, that means that someone that has a platonic affair with someone at work or someone that they may not get physical, but they emotionally engage in them and fall in love with that person, they say that 41%, that's a high number, 41% of marriages admit to infidelity that is either emotional or physical. Two to three percent of the children in this nation are a product of infidelity. So you ask yourself this question. Why is marriage faithfulness such a big deal to God? Well, let's talk about that for a moment. Because our society, to a large extent, believes that it's wrong, but doesn't always see it as a big deal. They say that it's not the best, but it appears to happen a lot more than what we would expect it to happen, emotionally or physically. I think to understand why it's a big deal to God, we have to go all the way back to the first book of the Bible called Genesis, the book of beginnings. I want you to see that in the book of Genesis, chapter 2, verse 24 through 25, it says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother 
and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked and felt no shame. So the first thing that I want you to understand is this. Uh, Listen to me well, because this is important. I say it when we talk about this topic, because I believe that people in church don't hear it enough. I think that a lot of people in church, well, first of all, seldom hear the word sex mentioned in church. And some of you, maybe when I said it, you bristled a little bit and said, is he supposed to say that pastor in church on Sunday morning? You know, the Bible has a lot to say about sex, a lot. You cannot read the Bible without encountering from the beginning a lot to say about how we manage sexuality. In fact, there are some passages in scripture that are literally R-rated if you start reading them. Most of what we hear in church growing up is no, 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 bad, 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 evil, evil, evil when it comes to sexuality. However, I want to say that God is the inventor of sexuality. He's the designer of sexuality. In fact, sex is a great thing. It's a God gift designed by the engineer himself, made you as a sexual being, designed you as a sexual being, wanting you to enjoy sexuality to its fullest in the confines and boundaries of marriage. You read uh, the Bible and you realize God created us to be physical things, beings, and it was good. God created us as gender beings, male and female, and it was good. And God creates us as sexual beings, and it is good. In fact, someone says this, uh, someone asks, hey, why does it seem like scripture seemingly is so liberating about sex inside of marriage, but so limiting for every other setting? I like the way that Tim Keller says it, who's an author and a theologian. He says, it's because sex is the most delightful and most dangerous of all human capacities. Sex works a lot like fire. It can warm, comfort, and purify, but if not handled with care, it can also burn, infect, scar, and destroy. Uh, Here's the thing about your sexuality. God created you as a sexual being. Yeah, what does that mean? It means that God created you either male or female, and there is an attraction that God gave you to the opposite sex. I've mentored a lot of young men over the years, and part of my um, every, uh, when I mentor young men between the ages of 16 to 28, we always start with understanding sexuality. Uh, because a lot of young men feel, uh, they, they feel guilty about having a sexual drive. And I always let them know, hey, you shouldn't feel guilty about it. God has given you a sexual drive. The fact that you desire to see the body of a naked woman, that's a good thing. That means that you are alive and well, and God has created you that way. However, God has created you to use that energy and to have that energy unleashed within marriage and held tight until marriage. And so 
During your days of singleness, it's part of your goal to control. It's part of your goal to uh, squelch the appetite. It's part of your goal to discipline your appetite because there's restraint that's held. And then when you're married, you can unleash it. Uh, But that's part of the challenge that we face. And I know that some of you may be hearing me today, and if you weren't raised in the church and don't know much about the Bible, you're looking at me and you say, hold on, pastor, are you living in the world that I live in? I'm 25 years old. I don't plan on getting married for another five years. Are you looking at me seriously, telling me that I need to be celibate, not sexually active for another five years until I get married? Are you seriously telling me that? Do you know what century we live in? Yes, I do. And I'm not telling you that. God is telling you that. And I'm telling you that if you live God's way, you're going to live countercultural. That you're going to live against the culture. That you're going to radically be different than your friends. You're going to date radically different. You're going to court radically different. And you're going to marry hopefully radically different than your friends and have a marriage that is radically different than those that end up 53% in divorce court. But you have to do it according to God's design. So... God talks about adultery because, listen to me, when you commit adultery, you are taking that energy, that sexual drive and energy that God has said, this is exclusively and 100% for your spouse, and you are turning that energy towards someone that it doesn't belong to. You are violating the covenant of marriage, the vows that you stated before God and before others. The monogamous relationship that you have said until death do us part and you are taking your affection and you are giving your affection to someone outside of the marriage covenant. You are betraying the partner that you have committed yourself to. You are taking something sacred, something that only belongs to him or her and you are taking it and giving that something sacred, giving it to another individual. The damage that that does to marriage, the scars that it leaves, the distrust that it generates, the healing that necessitates. Yeah, about 30% of couples that have lived through infidelity are able to survive and live and thank God for his healing and thank God for forgiveness. But it is a long journey of restoration when there has been infidelity. And the reason that God is so adamant about this seventh command, thou shalt not commit adultery, is because God understands the power of faithfulness and commitment. And God understands that when two individuals have committed to one another, what God has put together, let no man separate. And when they love one another, and, and, and out of that love, children are born. And when those children grow up in a household where two people are passionate about one another, cultivating that relationship, loving each other, that the self-esteem, that the worth, that the faith, that the value, that the protection that it gives to the children is powerful. When that is broken, there's also a lot of healing in children that need to happen. 
There's a lot of restoration that needs to happen. And so God is adamant about faithfulness because he's a faithful God. You know, the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31 through 32, for this reason, a man will leave his father and a mother and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. You see, the way you manage your sexuality is a reflection on your spiritual life as well. It's a reflection on the character of God. God designed us. God designed us to be faithful to one another. God designed your marriage to work best when it works in fidelity. And when adultery takes place, listen, Proverbs chapter 6, verse 32 through 33, I think says it best. A man who commits adultery lacks judgment. Whoever does so destroys himself. But blows and disgrace are his lot, and his shame will never be wiped away. Now, listen, let me repeat that. A man who commits adultery lacks judgment. Whoever does so destroys himself. Whoever does so destroys himself. As a pastor, I've had to mop up after a lot of broken marriages. As a pastor, I've been there when a trembling, shaking man has to confess to his wife of 20 years that he's been unfaithful. I've seen the flush in the face, the tears in the eyes. I've seen the anger stammering, the betrayals of how could you the walking away and saying it's over. I've been there through the pain. Children who feel betrayed. I've been there as I've watched families unravel and then try to rebuild. Always with a sense of distrust. Always with a sense of could this happen again. I've watched the effects of betrayal of violating the vows. I've seen the devastation on children who grow up and can't trust their spouses and date with great reluctance because they already feel like they're going to be unfaithful. I've seen people postpone marriage year after year after year thinking, why would I get married only to end up like my parents in a terrible marriage of bickering and fighting and infidelity and brokenness. I've seen people that say, I I'm never going to get married because all they have is the image of a broken marriage of infidelity, of lies, of distrust, of insecurity. I've seen the devastation of cheating, of infidelity, of adultery, of unfaithfulness. That's why the seventh command, thou shalt not commit adultery, is stated clearly, powerfully, but emphatically. A Christian counselor, early on in his marriage, decided to write down, just to remember, 
the effects of what would happen if he was unfaithful to his wife. He wrote out a list of things and he put it in the front of his Bible and he would periodically read it just to remind himself, hey, when you start being lured in by the novelty of a young lady that looks at you with eyes that say, come hither, laughs at every joke and as the mind starts to wonder, he wrote down the consequences just to remind himself, and he would read it often just to remind himself, hey, remember that when you cross these lines, when you don't keep these boundaries, when you walk through that door, there are consequences that you will have to endure for many years. And so he wrote some of the consequences that he could think of. He said, I will grieve the one who redeemed me, God, I will drag his sacred name through the mud. I will have to look Jesus in the eye one day and give an account for my actions. I will inflict untold hurt on my wife, who's my best friend and who has been faithful to me. I will lose my wife's respect, love, and trust. I will hurt my beloved daughters. I will destroy my example and credibility. I might lose my wife and children forever. I will shame my family. I will lose my own self-respect. I could form memories and flashbacks that placate future intimacy with my spouse. I could reap the consequences of diseases. I could cause a pregnancy that would be a lifelong reminder of my sin. I could invoke lifelong shame and embarrassment on myself. So remember self. Do not commit adultery. You know, Jesus, as he talked about this topic... He actually took it to the next level. And I want to talk to you not only about adultery that we all understand, physical act of adultery, infidelity, intercourse, two people having sex together when one is married. But I want to go further and go where Jesus went to. Because if you remember Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, we call it the Sermon on the Mount. He was talking to religious people and he was said, you have heard it said, and then Jesus would shake them by saying, but I say to you. Uh, the Pharisees and the religious leaders of that day, they were focused on the outside. And they were clear about the outside commands like, don't murder. But Jesus went even further and said, it's not just about not murdering someone. It's about how you feel in your heart towards that person because how many of you know you can murder someone without lifting a finger and even touching them when in your heart you've had hatred and murderous thoughts towards them? So Jesus takes it even further. For example, in Matthew chapter, well, he starts with physical adultery. We all, we all understand adultery is forbidden in the Ten Commandments. Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 18. Leviticus chapter 18, verse 20. All talk about not committing adultery. 
by the way, in Deuteronomy chapter 22, it actually says that adultery is punishable by death. Do you remember the story in the New Testament where a woman is caught in adultery? We call her the adulterous woman. And the religious leaders, they drag this woman in front of Jesus. They had rocks in their hands. Couple things strike me about that story. Number one, where's the man? And all the ladies say, uh huh. You know, the Old Testament just didn't say that the woman should be put to death, it said the man and the woman. And there seems to be a missing partner in this story. But it's the woman that's drawn before Jesus and the crowd gathers around with the rock and they say, hey, the law says that we should stone her. What do you say? And I love the response of Jesus. Although the law demanded death, Jesus writes in the sand. We don't know exactly what Jesus wrote. Most scholars believe that Jesus was writing sins. And as people saw their own sin in the sand, Jesus said, now, he who is without sin, let him throw the first stone. And one by one, they dropped the rocks and started to walk away until it was just Jesus and the woman caught in adultery. And Jesus didn't say, it's okay that you sinned. He didn't say, it's all right that you sinned. He didn't excuse her sin. He didn't minimize her sin. But he said, I don't condemn you. Thank you, Jesus, for your forgiveness. But he said to the woman, now go and sin no more. See, the Old Testament demanded death to those that had engaged in adultery. And, and the people of the law, they, they understood that it demanded death. They were well aware of what the Bible had to say about this commandment. They understood that the Bible was clear about it. But, but I want you to see what Jesus says. Jesus is talking about murder in Matthew chapter 5, and he says, you've heard that you shouldn't murder. And look what he says in verse 21. You have heard that it was said, those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that who, anyone who is angry with his brother will be liable for judgment. And Jesus goes to the heart. He always does, doesn't he? You could stand there in self-righteousness and say, I've never murdered anybody. I'm never, I'm not one of those in Cook County or Statesville. But Jesus said, yeah, but if you hate someone in your heart, you've already committed heart murder against that person. If you hate someone, if you're bitter against someone, if you resent someone, it's not just about the physical act of murder, taking a gun and shooting someone. You have committed murder in your heart if you hate someone. If you had this, these thoughts, murderous thoughts against someone, you are a murderer, a heart murderer. Now you may not go to Cook County, you may not be in prison, but before the eyes of God, you've committed murder in your heart because you've hated 
someone. And then Jesus shocks the crowd, the self-righteous, the condemners, those that would drag an adulterous person in front of Jesus and say, uh, stone her. He shocks them, especially this male crowd, when he says to them, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. <gasps> Wait a second, Jesus. Say that again? Okay. It's not just about the physical act of adultery. Jesus says, if you look at a woman and you're undressing her, if you look at a woman lustfully, and already in your own mind you have taken advantage of that woman or gotten involved in that woman, he said, you may not be a physical adulterer, but you have become a spiritual adulterer. You've committed adultery in your own heart. And then he goes on and shocks people by saying, hey, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. And if your hand offends you, cut it off. Now, he's not advocating for self-mutilation. Don't go home and say, Pastor told me, no, 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 I didn't say that. But he's using hyperbole to tell us, go to any extreme possible to walk in purity. Because all of us know that even if you plucked your eyes out, hey, if you've ever known a blind man, you know blind men can lust too in their mind. You don't have to see to lust. But what he's saying is you need to go to every extreme to walk in purity because God is saying, I am so committed to faithfulness that whatever you have to do, whatever you have to do to walk in purity, you should do it to an extreme because it has ripple effects on you, your life, your marriage, your daughters, your sons, your grandchildren. So whatever it takes. Now you say, well, pastor, now you're talking crazy impossible. Well, I know some people already telling me, pastor, I'm a man. I mean, I don't just thoughts go through my mind all the time, every six minutes. In fact, pastor, I have a hard time even in church trying to control my mind. And so let me tell you this. You can't control what goes through your mind, but you can control what channel you let it land on. Hey, you may be driving down the expressway and there's a billboard of some scantily dressed woman and you catch it and see it and it draws your attention. That's one thing, that flashed through your mind. But if you keep looking, take a second look and kind of look back and get a little crick in your neck because you're looking so much and then you start dwelling on it and then you go in your own thoughts and minds, you have just landed on a channel that you don't need to be in. Hello. And by the way, this goes directly to those of you men that say, Pastor, you know, as long as I'm not touching, as long as I'm not involved, and you excuse and make it sound like it's okay that the Bible says nothing about pornography. 
I've heard men tell me that, you know, as long as I don't cross the line, as long as I'm not touching, you know, pornography's good, I need it, it needs to be there. Listen, let me tell you what the Bible says about pornography. The Bible says about pornography that when you look at a woman to lust after her, you have committed adultery. So what the Bible is saying is that there is no place in your life to be watching naked women except for your wife. That's what the Bible is saying. Man, that's a whole separate message that I could get on, but let me just tell you this. If you're raising young men today, let me tell you, you better be especially aware of the young men that you're raising because it's not like it was 30 years ago, maybe, or 20 years ago when you were being raised, where, where to get pornography, you had to order some Playboy magazine or you had to go to some seedy video place in some uh, 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 little corner of some irreputable neighborhood and go in and go behind a curtain and select a video and see granular images of some seedy sexual uh, encounters. Now, if you're an 11-year-old with a smartphone, all it, all it takes is click, 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 and you are exposed to every type of pornography that you would want to be exposed to. And let me tell you as you say, oh, no, not my boy. He's so innocent. Can I tell you, you're very innocent then because your boy is a boy. And I'm going to tell you, they tell us that 13-year-olds, that 60 to 70% of 13-year-olds have already been exposed to pornography on their own devices already. So let me tell you, parents, do not be naive. You say, well, pastor, he's a boy. It's okay. Yeah, it's okay that he has an attraction to see the body of a naked woman. That's okay. I, he's built that way, wired that way, but it's not okay that he's feeding it before the time. Let me tell you why. Because pornography is addictive. Uh, they've done studies over and over and over and over of, porn, uh, of pornography being addicted is like any other drug. And someone gets addicted to pornography when they feel a little low, they hit the pornography. When they're a little sad, they hit on the pornography. Pretty soon, it's like a drug. Every time that you feel a little emotionally out of it, you hit the pornography and it's a lazy way to interact with a, wom a, a woman or a person of the opposite sex and to watch them. It takes no emotional investment on your part. There's no, how you doing today? There's no conversation. It's just straight out taking advantage of another person, viewing another person as an object to fulfill the desires or your own dream. And it is detrimental to your sex life. It's detrimental to your marriage. It's addictive. It's unhealthy. And so you do not let your boys become addicted to pornography. And let me tell you this. Hey, parents, if you're not watching, if you have no sense of what your kids are watching on their smartphones, then I can tell you already they're into it. It is like exposing your boys to a dirty neighbor next door and not, not keeping an eye on what they're doing. It is your responsibility to guard their, their hearts and their minds. Whew, got that off my chest. <laughs> You say, well, pastor, it's not a problem. Once they get married and they can have sex with their wife, they'll leave the pornography. That's not how it works. Men who struggle with pornography before they get married will struggle with pornography after they get married. It's addictive. 
It's a degradation of women. And it's unfair to your spouse to be comparing your spouse to some porn star where you have no type of relationship with and no investment in. It's unfair. It sets unrealistic expectations. And it's detrimental to your mindset, to your health, and to your marriage. So guard your purity. Jesus said, if you look after a woman to lust after her, you've already committed adultery in your own heart. In fact, it goes on to say, Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18, flee sexual immorality. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22, it says, flee evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, the apostle Paul tells us what should be in our mind. Think on these things, whatever's good, whatever's praiseworthy, whatever's lovely, whatever's pure. Think on these things. There is a battle that wages for the heart and the soul of our marriages as we guard our minds and as we battle for purity. Number four, I want to answer the question, how do you safeguard your marriage against adultery? Some of you are married today, whether you've been married a year or 20 years, this is as relevant to you as anything else. If you're dating today, let me tell you, this is super relevant to you. If you're single, this is relevant to you because there's not a person in this auditorium that doesn't manage their sexual urges and desires. And I already mentioned to you, it's good that you have a healthy sexual desire, but it has to come under the management of God, come under the control of God. Let me just mention there's a couple of things that you can do to help affair proof your marriage. I believe, by the way, that if you invest in your marriage intentionally, if you cultivate that relationship regularly, if you engage in romancing your partner, that I, I would hope that you're the exception. And when you're in your 80s, that you're still holding each other's hands and looking in each other's eyes, whispering sweet nothings to each other. I was in Texas this past week. By the way, it's hot in Texas. And I was uh, speaking at a, at a convention called the uh, NRB, and I had the opportunity to meet a, a pastor, a preacher that I had listened to for a long time, been around. He's in his 80s. His name is Chuck Swindoll. And uh, I was sitting at the table with my wife, with Ch Chuck Swindoll, and his wife, Cynthia. Again, they're in their 80s, up there in age. And uh, I was noticing their interaction and how they laughed at each other and looked at each other's eyes. And then he got up to go up to the platform to say a few words and he held her hand and he watched how she should get up there. And when they got up there, he was talking about how important she had been in his life and what an impact, at how they're, they're partnering together. And they were talking about uh, what, a, what a force his wife Cynthia had been. And here's the 80-year-old Chuck Swindoll with the smirk on his face. And he, and he said, and boy, does she have nice legs. And I thought, I love it. 
that at 80 some years old, he's talking about his wife's legs. And I thought, you know, there's a couple that's invested in their marriage. They've cultivated it. They've spoken into each other. They've been through the rough times, but they've, they've been intentional about making this a good marriage. And so I want to wrap up by just going really quickly because our time is running out, but just really quickly, if you're married here, if you're thinking about marriage, if you're dating, you need to put these things into practice. Number one, avoid temptation. Avoid temptation. Can I tell you something? Listen to me, married woman. You have no business sitting down with a coworker, a male coworker, and sharing all your marital issues and problems and woes. No business at all doing that. You say, well, he's just a good listener. You know, there's no problem there. There's nothing going on. No, 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 no. That's exactly how affairs start. Listen to me, man of God. You have no business flirting, no business with innuendos, no business with bantering with someone at work or someone else that you know, and then you just say it's all in good fun. No, no, that, that's exactly how it starts, all in good fun. You need to set boundaries. Can I tell you something, man of God? Listen, man of God, if you're at work, uh, and every time you refer to your wife, it's not the vieja. It's not the old lady. It's not the nagging woman over there. You should, your coworkers should know that you are madly in love with your spouse. You should wear your ring at your work. They should hear you talk well of her, applaud her, value her, so that they know he's off limits because, man, this guy loves his wife. You need to make sure, you need to assume weakness, not assume strength. You need to walk as though I'm weak and that you're only well, you're only steps away from a possible moral failure unless you guard, fiercely guard the integrity of your marriage and the integrity of your heart. Number two, date your spouse. You know, the Bible talks about how to rekindle our love for God. In Revelation, he says, do what you did at the beginning. That's exactly the same uh, that's exactly the same formula I would give you if your love has started to run dry, if it's gotten a little stale, do what you did at the beginning. Well, what did you do? You say, well, pastor, we were teenagers. We'll do some of your teenage stuff. Call your spouse in the middle of the day. Tell her how beautiful she is. Grab her hand when you walk. Date her. Have some fun. Please don't be like those couples that I see out on a date. They're married couples typically, and they're both on their phone just watching and scrolling and not talking to each other. Leave your phone at home. Don't insult. And can I say, by the way, can I just throw this in there? If you are on a date, please, please, please do not insult your date or your wife by looking at some other woman while you're out on a date. And you say, Pastor, I'm just admiring beauty. And we'll admire the beauty in front of you, not the beauty that's beside you. Do not insult your spouse, please. 
I'm embarrassed for women when I see a man that's, that's looking at some other woman while they're, well, I'm embarrassed. I want to go up and say, dude, what are you doing? And I know she wants to slap him. Number three, stop the pornography. I already talked about that. Stop the pornography of any kind. There's, there's uh, uh, accountability stuff that you can give. Covenant Eyes is a good one. I had my boys on it when they were growing up so that if they got on any kind of website, I would get a report that would tell me any kind of suspicious Suspicious website of any kind. So find accountability. Get serious about avoiding pornography, staying away from pornography. It'll only damage your marriage. Number four, have sex regularly. You know, there was a couple men I had lost for a long time and they were like, hey, pastor, what verse is that? Tell me what. What verse is that? What verse and chapter? Okay, verse and chapter. Well, let me give you one passage to start reading. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but it says, and do not defraud each other. Defraud means don't take away from each other. Do not defraud each other. Withhold sex from each other unless you both agree for a time so that you can fast and pray about a particular issue. Then be sure to commence having sex so Satan doesn't have an opportunity to tempt you to have sex with someone else. In other words, if you're married, have sex often, have fun sex, have a lot of sex. I know some of you are saying, pastor, I'm not sure. Are you supposed to say that in church? I remember uh, years ago, I was preaching at one place and this little old dear lady come up to me and she says, pastor, I'm going to, I think I'm going to leave the church. I said, why? She says, you, you talk too much about sex. I said, well, I'm just preaching the Bible. The Bible talks a lot about it. So I'm just preaching what's in the word. Seriously. Do not defraud one another. Cultivate it. And by the way, can I just debunk the fallacy that some people have? If you watch a sitcom or television, it feels like the sizzling great sex is always being had by singles who are having a one-night stand with someone. That's a fallacy. The best sex in America is between married, monogamous people that are loving each other and know each other and are tender with one another. Stats prove it and say it, so the best sex is in married sex. I've told my wife I want to get a t-shirt that say Christians do it better, but she won't let me get it. She says no. Number five, initiate affection. Initiate affection. Studies show us that couples who are affectionate with each other stay together. And what I mean, guys, is that initiate affection with your spouse, not just when it's the day. Grab her hand, rub her back, touch her hair. Not just when you want something. No carrot at the end of the touching. Out of sheer appreciation. Initiate affection. Number six, have fun together. Couples that laugh together, have fun together, 
They tend to stay together. And number seven, and lastly, I'll close with this. One of the greatest gifts that you could do, one of the greatest things that fair-proof your marriage is keep your spiritual life strong. You can't do this on your own. You need the supernatural power of God to forgive when you don't feel like forgiving, to love when you don't feel like you should be loving, to baptize you with a fresh commitment to your spouse. You need the Spirit of God to convict you when you need to release things, to baptize you with a fresh passion and desire for your spouse, to give you the perseverance to work through times of difficulty, to give you the patience to work through the struggles of a spouse. You need the supernatural power of God. You cannot be single on your own and maintain your purity without the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit. You cannot be dating and maintain your purity without the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit. And you cannot be married and make it what it needs to be without the supernatural power of God leading you in empowering you to do what you cannot do in your flesh. Let's stand together. I thought through this altar call, which is a little bit tougher but I want to do an altar call because I do every Sunday. And that's an opportunity to respond to the Spirit of God. So I'm going to invite you forward. If you're a married couple, maybe the Spirit of God has spoken to you about not neglecting this gift called marriage. Maybe you're enduring your marriage and God says, I want more than endurance. I want investment. I want sparks to be reignited. I want you to love that woman or that man in a fresh new way. If you've just left it on autopilot, it's going to degenerate. Some of you need to say, I can't be an autopilot anymore. I need to start investing the way that God has called me to invest so that I can be that 80-year-old couple holding each other by the hand and looking at each other's eyes and saying, wow, this is greater than ever before. If you're dating here, hey, how long are you going to date? Seriously. And I meet you and say, how long you been dating? Is this your spouse? No, no, no. Kind of, we're almost like spouses. How long you been together? Seven years. Are these your kids? Yeah. yeah. When are you going to get married? Oh, we're working on it faster. Seriously, how long are you going to work on it? How long? Some of you need to overcome the fear of commitment. And don't make your... Hey, men, can I tell you, don't make your girlfriend beg for it. 
you pursue and say, you know, it's been way too long. I'm sorry. I'm marrying you like as soon as we can. And for those of you that are struggling with maintaining the purity in your singleness, you're fighting for it, but it's a battle. When all the world seems to be doing whatever they want and you're walking in purity, let me tell you, the battle is worth fighting. Recommit again to that battle of purity. Recommit again to consecrating yourself before the Lord. Recommit again to it. Oh, I know it's a battle. I know it seems like you're missing out, but listen, you're never missing out when you do it God's way. Never. It's always, always worth it. Fight again. Fight again. So maybe there's some married couples that need to come to this altar and say, we're reinvesting again. Maybe there's some dating couples that need to say, you know what? We need to take some steps. Maybe there's some singles that need to say, I'm walking in purity by the grace of God. I'm just going to open up this altar. If God has convicted you or put on your heart any area that you need to reconsecrate to himself, then this altar is open right now. Come on forward. Thank you, Lord Jesus.